This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you live on tape from Vox headquarters in New York City. Um, We're about two months out from my big code media event, so I should start telling you about the big code media event. If you listen to this podcast, this is something you will want to attend. We have the most interesting people in tech and media talking about how those two worlds combine, just like on this podcast. You'll see people like uh, Condé Nast CEO Roger Lynch, John Stanky, who runs what used to be called Time Warner and is now head of Warner Media and now also the COO of AT&T. He keeps getting bigger and bigger. I'm glad we're getting him on stage. Nancy Dubuque, who runs Vice, formerly ran uh, A&E. Lots of other heavy hitters. Um, Mike Isaac, do you remember going on, on the Code Media stage? Oh my God, I do. What were you wearing? <laughs> I think I wore What were you wearing? I think you I wore like a, a pink suit. shirt or something. You wore like a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> I think maybe you put the Hawaiian shirt on over your T-shirt because you right. needed something to, to belt onto the uh, <laughs> the microphone. And, and you now inter- look at me now. Remember who you interviewed? It was Dan. It was Dan Rose. Yeah. Of Facebook. Yeah. VP. Yeah. That's right. That was a good Have initiation you for you. No. <laughs> no. If not. Oh, well, he's not at Facebook anymore. No, he's like kite surfing in Hawaii or something. <laughs> um, that's Mike Isaac. You here? Hi. My former coworker. Former mentee. I don't want Even responsibility. For, you know what? I, you, I, I will now take some responsibility for you. I taught Mike some of what he knows. Um, Not really. Yeah. Um, now you're at the New York Times. <laughs> yes. You've written a book. It is literally a beach read. I read it on the beach All right. this weekend. Did you finish it? Of course I finished it. I'm, I'm impressed. Not everyone has finished it so far. I'm the very least, impressed. the l- very least I can do for a podcast guest is read their book. Unless it's terrible, in which case I will lie to them and tell them I finished it. <laughs> Are you lying? No, no, I won't lie. I'll just say it's, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I read the entire freaking thing. Thank you, Peter. What's it called, Mike? This is called Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. It's about the battle for Uber. It is about, <laughs> is about the, the ascent of... Uh, and stumbling and eventual fall of the founder of Uber and and the company as a whole. It's a really good book. <laughs> I'm really glad I can say that with a straight face because <laughs> if you wrote a crummy book... You would still have to lie to me. I could find a way to sort of be like, interesting, <laughs> timely. No, no, it's a genuinely good book. You uh, will enjoy reading it. Go buy it. Um, if you follow anyone on Twitter, you've probably seen them retweeting uh, Mike's tweets, begging them to buy the book. So <laughs> go buy Mike's book. Thank you. For Thank God's you. sake. Um, I want to do one more flashback. It's the summer of 2017. Oh. You are killing the Uber beat. You, you, you have the breaking all the big stories. You have just broken the story about Travis. Is it Kalanick? Uh, Kalanick. Kalanick. I always get his name wrong. Um, I, I being forced Kalanick. out. Mm-hmm. You you are riding high. We have dinner in Los Angeles randomly. <laughs> you look terrible. <laughs> You've been run down because of this beat, I'm guessing. Yes. Because you're just cranking and cranking and cranking and cranking, but it's paying off. You're winning. And we're talking about the fact that you're doing so well. Your bosses, the New York Times, know who you are. You're on A1. That's the best thing. And what are you going to do with the capital you stored at the Times, that you've accumulated at the Times? And I say, Mike... One thing you definitely don't want to do is write a book. It's a terrible idea. It's going to seem like a good idea. Yep. No one's going to want to read it. Yep. It's going to be really hard to write. It's got to come out years from, from the incident. And you nod your head and go, that's right, That's Peter. right. That's right. Two months later, I'm writing a story <laughs> about how you're writing a book for Uber. About that's Uber. Right. That's right. What happened? <laughs> why, why didn't you listen to oh me? Oh, my God. I, no, I'm glad you didn't listen to me. You were, <laughs> you, were, you were the voice of like... 
my hesitancy to write a book and like all the things that really are actual challenges when going into this. And this is, I had to, that's what I had to like step back from how I was approaching like Uber, the company and more like, what does Uber stand for in this whole thing? You know, it's more like a parable about power and hubris and the tech company, uh, tech industry writ large. And, and that's how I sort of backed out of it. But yeah, you're exactly right. Like, it's easy for people to move on and like the world happens very fast. Trump keeps the news rolling and and now the Epstein thing is like the next big thing, right? So it's it's hard to keep people's attention. I think the thing I saw in Uber was kind of the beginning of this tech clash that we're kind of in right now, mm-hmm. you know? And while it's moved on to other bigger targets, I think Facebook is obviously was in the eye of the tornado last year. Google is starting to get its turn with YouTube. And, you know, it's just sort of spreading from there. It really crystallized a moment of of people like waking up and being like, maybe not all technology is a force for good or this can be bad. This thing on my phone that I've been using without thinking about it, <laughs> and maybe I complain about surge pricing, right? Yep. That was kind of previously the main complaint about Uber, if, if, if you thought about it at all. Maybe there's something else going on here and I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it. Or it's a symbol of somehow Trump or tech bros or something, and I haven't really been thinking about it, and now I am. Yep. And that's when you sort of caught the story. I think so. I think it was, um, you know, it was funny because I, when 2017 started, I was sitting down with someone at Uber and just saying, look, I think Facebook is going to be the real big thing I'm going to cover this year. I'm probably not going to write about Uber that much. And then, like, Uber stepped in every, like, flaming grenade, you know, landmine there was that year and just had scandal after scandal. And I think... You know, more than just what happened in the specifics of that company, it really did stand for a sort of like pent up tension around how I think people in general, or my thesis is how people in general are starting to view how tech shapes the world in ways that we don't, we have not taken the time to think about before, right? So you spent a ton of time documenting sort of how how this was a growth at all costs company. Yep which is not unusual for Silicon Valley. And I think that's one of the things you're trying to say, look, this is happening in lots of other places. Yep. You also explain in great detail how, by design, there were no controls on the company. It wasn't just that there was a lack of oversight. Travis Kalanick. 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 Thank you. Um, intentionally didn't want anyone controlling everything. He wanted a bunch of, he was a very aggressive, very driven guy, wanted people in his mold. He didn't want anyone sort of bringing him problems. He wanted people going and doing things and was very happy to not know how it was happening. Yep. Yep. I mean, his whole thing from the very beginning was he doesn't want to build the next Cisco. He wants to be scrappy and stay scrappy. Which is what you hear lots of tech guys, it's almost always guys, say. Yep. And then eventually they're happy to get bigger or happy to sell someone else to someone to sell to someone else bigger. Yeah. Is there an alternate version of Uber's history where their growth at all costs, go, 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 break all the same rules, but are just a little more buttoned down and Travis Kalanick? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't send out stupid tweets and doesn't put a picture of Ayn Rand on his Twitter account and is a slightly less abrasive and doesn't host an off-the-record dinner where his number two guy talks about sicking a private investigator after a reporter. Is there a version where they just tweak it a little bit? It's the same company and all the same things that lots of other people have problems with, like the way it treats drivers as contractors. This is all yeah. standard stuff still now. Yeah. People are starting to get a little worried about it. But in, th- th- there's lots of things that Uber did and does that are replicated lots of other places. It, it hasn't gotten – those companies don't have the same animus, again, up until now. Right. No, no, no. I think you're, I think you're touching on the exact right point. Like for – most CEOs, and maybe this is one of Travis's sort of fatal flaws, is like you don't let the mask drop. Maybe he was like too much himself, right? Maybe maybe even CEOs who have to deal with the same sort of issues uh, out there just sort of are, are better at paying lip service to the idea that that they do care or whatever. And Travis was just sort of himself. You and they know? get media trained and they get some right. of the edges sanded off he and they don't never... put themselves in places where they're going to do dumb things. And if they do, someone tidies it up for them. Absolutely. And we see that all the time now. And that's just sort of the the trappings of being a CEO, right? And, and there's maybe an alternate universe in which he was able to, to learn that. I think that's the tragedy of him. Like, if he could have been a little bit self more, more self-aware and, like, realize why people don't like 
this ex broy thing or like the Ayn Rand avatar, like that just incites sort of this animus from the very beginning. Um, maybe maybe he would have been able to shave it back. Maybe he would still be there right now. Did did you ever get the sense that I mean you have a you have a great anecdote in here, a great part of the story here where he's sort of literally on his knees, rolling around a carpet, saying, "What have I done?" Was that him saying? I have fucked up in such a way because it's now public. This is after a video of him right. berating a driver comes out. Was that the mistake? Is that it was public or was he actually upset with himself for his behavior? I, the, the thing that I struggle with a lot is, is trying to figure out how much of it is artifice versus the real Travis. And if we get to him, you know, like every person I talk to who's ever been close to him feels very conflicted about talking to someone like me or someone like mm-hmm. you because they do feel a sense of loyalty to him. He is very charming. He's very sort of like, uh, you know, he's endeared himself to a lot of people. I don't know if he reached the point. Uh, there's one thing I I do a snippet of in the book, uh, this letter that he works on uh, that he's trying to write to all the employees at his company and the public. This is after the video came out, this right? This is after the video came out. It's a video it was, of him insulting an Uber driver after taking a ride in the guy's car. And his, um, his, he has this like huge loss in his his life. His mother, you know, tragically dies, and he's trying to just sort of get everything together and save his career, save his job, but also give a, a, a tacit admission of, of fault in the many ways that he's been, he, many shortcomings he's had as CEO. And he's ready to deliver it in June. And then, um, you know, days later, before he's able to deliver this letter, he gets taken out in this investor coup uh, by yeah. by some of these board. And, you know, I just, I wonder if that was the moment of self-awareness that he had, but was betrayed. And that maybe that betrayal caused him to strike back. Maybe he was weakened to a point where he was willing to change. I don't know. I don't know if we'll it's ever know. It's pretty hard to change yourself. And the older you get, the That's, harder it is. And by the way, if you're CEO of a $68 billion company, it's probably not the right place to to really change yourself. <laughs> That's what a lot of people said. They're like, look, once you're X years old, I mean, Travis is in his early to mid 40s now. And once you get to a certain point, how how different can you be? How much sort of growth and maturity can can there be? So... I don't know. Maybe it's too optimistic. Because I've tech adjacent for a long time, there's there's parts of the book where I'm like, how come Mike didn't talk about this? I mean, didn't talk about that. Mm. I'm sure you had to make those decisions many times. The one question I kept thinking about was the drivers really aren't a character in yep. this. There's a couple references to them and a couple references to drivers complaining, one we just talked about at length. Yep. And I think you probably thought a lot about whether or not to talk about Uber as something from the worker's perspective. Yeah. Um, Walk me through that. No, totally. I think I think that the thing that Uber didn't pioneer but really popularized, the driver as contractor model, this sort of like free labor without actually— You work for us, but you're not our employee. Exactly, yeah. They, they absolutely turned that—they made the gig economy a thing, right? And I think that deserves and has spawned its own series of books and sort of thinking through yeah. the issues of— labor and whether it's right or wrong. I think for me, this was just more of a, a character study and, and thinking about uh, how the Valley uses power and how we yeah. worship founders. But I, I, I mean, there's an entire other book's worth of, of what they're doing. Because that, that's still it's going not, on again, right it's now. It's not just that they're saying, well, we've figured out this loophole to, sure. to, to have employees but not have employees. And, and, and that saves us a lot of overhead and we don't have to pay them as well and take care of them. For Uber, it went beyond that, right? It was, we're going to lure them in by telling them they're going to make 80 grand a year or whatever. It was part of the pitch. Yep. And then we are going to reduce what we pay them yep. on a consistent basis. It's great for our users because their rides get cheaper and cheaper. Yep. By default, it's worse for them. Um, it seems like an actual major flaw with the business plan. It's one thing to say, look, we don't want to, ha- we don't want to pay, f- you know, we don't want to do a 401k match. We don't want to provide healthcare and that's the gig economy. It's another right. thing to say, we're literally going to grind this employee base down to where we almost can't get drivers anymore. And I mean, it seems at least on its face, there's only two ways to make your margins better. And that's either increase prices for the riders or decrease wages for the drivers. Right. And so People are very price sensitive and not willing to pay a lot more. So that's usually where they take the hit as the drivers. I think it's funny because there are some analogies on if you think about Facebook and how it, it, it sort of 
invited businesses to be on its mm -hmm. platform and build up their pages over time and then slowly get them to have to start paying for engagement yeah. instead of The difference of is you're still exchanging value, right? Sure. You're, we're giving you something of value. No, you don't have to use Facebook as a business. Yep. And by the way, the reason you use it if you continue to use Facebook is because it really works really well. Sure. I have many more questions for you. Let's take a break. You need a break. You've been – how many podcasts have you done today? I, or how many interviews have you done today? This is like number seven or eight. Okay. We're going to go still, easy. I'm okay. We're, we're <laughs> you going to beat me up? No. <laughs> love you, man. Be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> Back here with Mike Isaac. I've been impressing Mike with some magic tricks I just did. Pretty cool, right? I love your top hat. I can tell. I can tell how time moves. Um, <laughs> there's lots of books like this. They're not as good as yours, but lots of them where at some point the author says the story is also about me, and I don't usually mind it because I'm a narcissist. It's one of the reasons I write in the podcast, <laughs> and I don't mind it in other folks if they do it well, and mm. so that's fine. And you have that in this book. I but do. it's more than that because you really are part of the story and the press is a big part of the story. 100%. Like sometimes I watch The West Wing and go, this is really this is the entire opera? You know, if you watch The West Wing, it seems like the main focus of The West Wing is communication and PR. I'm sure it's a big part of being president, but it seems like there's probably some stuff that doesn't involve PR. And it seems like that's a writerly thing to do is to make the press secretary the most important thing. Long-winded way of saying, in this story, it seems like the press plays a major part. Yep. Um, you guys collectively are often being used in Uberland by one side to kneecap the other. And then a lot of this is simply about just leaks coming out in varying ways. And, and like we talked about at the beginning, that some of this stuff, had it not been public, maybe there's a different version of the story. So how did you think about the role the press plays and the role that you play in telling this story? Well, I, I mean, to your earlier point, like I'm, I was super sensitive around, you know, introducing myself in this book just because I think it – when people do it badly, it's just – it's really bad, right? And I did not want to fumble my way into it. I, hopefully, I pulled it off okay. But Sunday morning, I woke up bleary-eyed. <laughs> my editor, when I first told him my idea, he was like, uh, I don't know. But um, I, I ultimately do – become a part of the, the process, in particular be, towards the end when I'm unwittingly used as a, as a, a piece of – as a weapon, essentially, against Travis. Can we do a, a semi-spoiler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do I'll, – I'll, I'll, uh, I want you to read the book, but I will say, like, this, this investor, Cabal, has, has sort of threatened to go public by telling uh, Mike Isaac, the New York Times reporter, uh, that – that they're going to go up against him and they're going to oust this guy unless he steps down, right? And so— uh, So that's the most explicit version of it. Our plan to force you out is to tell you to leave. Yes. And if that doesn't work, we're going to tell the New York Times. Yes. Specifically, we're going to use that as literal leverage against you. Correct. And so it you are You are the lever. I am the lever. <laughs> and, and, I mean, like, to be, to be realistic, like— the press is often used as a lever, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to sort of, I think that's your job as a journalist. My job as a journalist is to recognize when you're being used, how you're being used, and if there's a legitimate reason for you to do a story or not. You know, like my, I was very, I didn't want to take sides. I probably could have gotten farther on scoops if I had taken a side in this whole fight, but I, that would also mean like, you lose out. I think it like it meant that I had to lose out on some other things. Use that idea. What do you mean you could have got farther? So journalists like will lean on their sources and sort of like take what they're being given and eat it up wholesale and spit out a story or whatever. I've lost scoops because I'll get told something and I'll be like, I don't. That doesn't. I need to check this out or that doesn't pass muster, and that'll go to someone else and I'll get scooped on it. But I feel okay about that at the end of the day because I don't know if that's always the whole I'm going to push truth. you a little more because we're doing some real sausage yeah, yeah, showing yeah, people yeah, yeah. what the sausage is made here yeah. you, you weren't just talking you talked about taking a side right the idea yeah. that you were going to 
wittingly, unwittingly sort of rely on a certain group of people to present a story yeah. to you. If you're smart, you understand what's happening. If maybe you're not so smart, who do, it doesn't matter. And then this this is literally, you have different factions in the Uber thing. So it's very clear, right? There's, yep. one, there's a, at least two different groups fighting each other, which yep. is one of the reasons you can tell a great story. But your suggestion is there were reporters... I don't know if well, I don't want to go as far yeah. as saying that like X reporter took this side you or that side. No, I would no. probably not do that. But I do think. By the way, was, there's lots of good reporters working on this beat. Yeah, yeah, that's and I would lose scoops very frequently to yeah. folks. But I think there were there were times when um, it was clear to me which side was advancing yeah. which particular narrative, and I wouldn't feel comfortable without running it down and. We we often do that, right? You read a story, you read someone else's scoop, you're trying to figure out how they got it. Yeah. I find that, you know, half the time you're probably right yep. in guessing where it came from. And then half the time you have no idea. And it's, sure. you know, being on the other side of it, it's like, oh, he got the story from so-and-so. I'm like, <laughs> I crumble. Uh, <laughs> I can't. It sucks. I can't tell you. But no, it's not where it came But Whatever. You can't go down that route. And yeah, I think, I think again, since we're pulling the curtain back, sure. I think almost any time, unless someone has completely never interacted with the media, which almost never happens doing what we do, right? Mm. They're coming to you with information or they're answering your question or picking up the phone because they have something in mind they want to get. They want to yep. tell their story. They yep. want to screw someone else. Sometimes yep. they want to be in the New York Times or whatever it is. Yep. It's almost never just because you walked up to them on the street and asked them a question and then something popped to their head, right? Yep. Someone has some agenda and you are – and in this story, literally billions of dollars in stake. So there are lots of people being paid to move stuff around. Yeah. And that's the – I think that's – I really do think that that's our job is like triaging what the motivations are, what like actual news value there is and what you're being told, how you can check that out with other folks and and even like divorcing the news from the agenda, right? Like I I, th I think you can gain – Someone can come to you with malintent. Absolutely. Is that, a, is that a word? I think malintent. Yeah, malintent. Um, people have come to me with malintent. I'm going to get back at so-and-so by telling you this. It's not a reason not to run it. Correct. Yeah, that's and that's the sort of – that's the other part of it is – there's absolute news value in doing that, even if the source has an agenda. Now, when you sort of, I, I also think that you have to sort of check it out and make sure that it's totally true and you're accurate and not just being used and manipulated and printing something that's wrong to make the news happen, you know, and that's the other part of this. This is a big part, by the way, there's a whole other version of this discussion happening sort of, it's interesting now, it's happening very publicly on Twitter about, mm. and usually on Twitter about White House reporting. The White House stuff, yeah. Just because really Steve Bannon or someone said this, why did you have to write it? And it's, totally. it's I go back and forth all the time. I'd be curious to, like, that's the yeah. thing, you know, and, and, and we get beat up all the time about, you know, do we run this or why did you run this story or whatever? And and it's a hard call to make a lot of the time. I feel like you and I would probably get similar things if tech were as high profile as, as White House sourcing and White House stories were, you know. Luckily, we don't. Thank, thank God. <laughs> um, how, how, do, what, what, how does that, that sourcing and agenda pushing change when you're writing a book instead of daily newspaper reporting yeah. when the stakes are now different, right? We, we know what happened at least up till now in the Uber story. Travis has already lost his job, right? I mean, yep. so in some ways, it seems like the, it's been diffused, does that make it easier to do the reporting? I think it's more about legacy now. Like if you if you write the book on X period of time, I think people, you know, you can say what you want about the publishing industry and like how and who reads books and how many mm -hmm. of them are, are read or bought. Like I did. Like, like you did to me over sushi in Los Angeles when you were trying to get me to not write this book. But I think it, it just means a lot to have this printed in a 400-page book about what what really went down, you know, Mike, you know, I, I took a year and a half of reporting to figure out, you know, how this all played out. And, and when I don't have a gun to my head to finish a daily deadline, I can take a breath and take my time to try to figure it out. And there's a sense of permanence. And, and I think, you know. So before your pitch was, this is going to go in the New York Times. Yeah. And that is meaningful. Which to is also people. effective. Yeah. This is I'm writing the book. Yep. Are there people who wouldn't talk to you when the story was a story who would talk to you now because it's a book? Yes, absolutely. Book is leverage. I think it's. I think it really does. I think anyone who says I'm going to write the book on X, especially when it's such a dramatic and um, sort of backstabbing cast of characters like this, where they, where a certain party wants to get their version of history on the record or whatever, or at least printed, everyone's sort of pushing these 
agendas and so it's still happening. It's still <laughs> it's all the all, it's still happening. That now it's just on it's, a different it's time for ego and legacy instead of billions of dollars. Yeah, and like people's next acts, right? Like you still want to be seen. If I'm fortunate enough to have people read this book, like they, they're still people have to think about how they're perceived for the next things they're going to do, right? And and they don't want to be named as the person who did this awful thing that's now in print permanently and. Uh, so I think it's it's really about legacy when you get down to it. And I tried to sort of suss out who was telling the truth and who wasn't, which you, is hard. <laughs> you almost never quote anyone directly or so-and-so said to me. That almost never yeah. happens. Um, you do quote a lot of people. You say so-and-so said this in a conversation with so-and-so. And yep. You've got a note there about sourcing and confidentiality. And you talk to this many people and you look at this many documents. Yep. I know you very well. You're a super diligent reporter. I have no questions about any accuracy there. There's a bunch of times where you're recounting a telephone call that one person made to another person. Like, well, there's a maximum of two sources here. <laughs> it's one or both of these people. <laughs> Theoretically, I guess they could have related to someone else. You allow yourself wiggle room for that. Sure. Did you ever think when you're tr you're trying to protect someone's confidentiality, but you're writing in a way that anyone with a couple brain cells can go, oh, that's... That guy said that to Mike at some point. <laughs> I mean, is, is that is that a is that a issue for you? Or you just, everyone's a grown up; they understand what they're getting into. I think it's one of those things where I I try to keep a veil of protection around everyone who cooperated. I'm never going to reveal who talked to me or who didn't talk to me or whatever, you know. Um, uh, but that said, like a lot of the players kind of have their ideas about who talked to me. I think you yeah. know and. And that and that's part of the reporter's toolbox of like, oh well, if this person thinks that they're talking to Mike, then maybe I should be playing the game too. And and that's the leverage that we have up our sleeve. And you have to use that <laughs> basically. Like, well, you you want to you want your side of the story told, so you better tell me because I'm going to go to this person over here and get it if you don't. I like that we're getting this granular here because this, <laughs> this is very in the weeds. Is, no, no, no. This that's the name of this podcast <laughs> in the weeds with Peter Kafka and reporters he knows. This is this is luckily I'm going to quote you here. Okay. Quote. My reporter trick is to play dumb and friendly, <laughs> semicolon. Oh, God, dumb and friendly that? is always more approachable than eager and prodding. <laughs> this, is, this is Mike Isaac revealing his major trick, oh, is to Jesus. appear dumb and friendly. Now, Mike, I know you. You are friendly. <laughs> so that's, not a, that's not a ruse. <laughs> Pretty smart, too. I've thought about this a lot. Like, how, as a reporter, do you talk to different people and how do different people figure out how to get people to talk to them? Do you mm. – and what I've sort of come to think about is probably works different in different situations. Totally. And there are also certain things that I can't get away with. Yes. For a bunch of reasons, but they're all inherently because I am who I am. And so I – Yes. I can't you – know, I am only I have a limited amount of friendliness, <laughs> for instance. <laughs> Um, That's a quote for you. <laughs> <laughs> I will quote you there. My friendliness meter is running out. Um, were you thinking about this actively for years or you came to this as you were writing it? I think this is what forms journalists. Um, and this is probably – I mean all of this reporting is just different schools and styles and types. And like again, like it makes you who you are and I who I am. I, I My personality is such that I don't have to actively think about – working people or whatever, you know, I'm just me and that either has people talk to me or it doesn't, you know, and and there's probably some, you know, more abstract level when I have to sit back and talk to people like you and think about why sourcing works for me the way it does. And it's probably because I've moved 30 times in my life and I'm able to sort of adapt and talk to people. And, and I think there's a level of emotional intelligence that I'm able to bring to, to meeting new people that works. That said, I'm not the type of reporter who's going to call you eight times and browbeat you until you finally give up this thing. Which is a technique. <laughs> Which is absolutely a very well, you know valid technique. Who do it. I, I know very well people who do it. And like that's that's absolutely a style. It's just not me. But it's it's and I might not get some stories because that's not what I do and I might gain some other stories because that is because I am a ham. But like it doesn't validate or invalidate other things. It's just I think it's just different ways of being a reporter, you know. I like that we're getting on the couch here. This is good. I'm <laughs> I know, charge this you for the session. Do you know what they charge in Manhattan <laughs> oh for, for psychiatry? I can't even. I can't afford therapy. It. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have a degree. Um, <laughs> we're going to think back about how you're going to pay this off. Be right back with Mike Isaac. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. 
Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back with Mike Isaac while we were off air. Mike told me his deepest fears. <laughs> How much do I have to pay you for this? No, no, I'm going to tell everyone about them, so it's, it's free. All right, all right. You talked about moving 30 times in your life. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, went I to high school in Texas, but yeah. I moved to a zillion times all around the country. In my mind, you are have a different background than a standard New York Times reporter. As I say that, I realize that I think a New York Times reporter is probably different than even five or ten years ago. Totally, totally. But explain to people how medium version of how you got to the Times. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this is how we became I'm friends. I'm looking at I your think. tats. No, you, have, I know. you have two full sleeves, right? I have two full sleeves. I'm You're working on my legs. I'm wearing a suit, but this is like my day in court suit. Um, I No, I mean, I feel like I kind of worked in the back door. I also think I came into Times in 2014 at a time of like great transition there, right? They were the, what was it called? The the report, that digital media report. The innovation the report. Innovation report, thank you, had just come out if not a few months before, the year before, um, Jill was leaving. Jill and, Abramson. Yeah, Jill Abramson was leaving and Dean Baquet was coming in. Um, there was a sense of urgency around digital media uh, that I had never seen at the, or never before seen at the Times, I think. The Times, which had really sort of held its nose about technology in general. And, yep. and it's definitely like, if you talk to folks on the West Coast, they get very upset about East Coast media, but with some reasoning, right? There, there's some sure. backing, right? There, there was a general sort of disdain for Silicon Valley yep. and technology and digital, and that was shifting. Now it's really, now it's like really correct, right? Yeah. If you, can, if you can say something convincing about the internet, you will. Some, no, that sounds bad. It is bad. The Times is hiring really great journalists <laughs> who really know tech well. I do think I got lucky. In, in 2014, I think I was a gamble when they hired me. You know, I was working at Recode and I was at All Things D with you for a few years. And I was at Wired and totally um, – I had flunked out of college. I was not an Ivy Leaguer. Yeah, that's, where I, want, that's <laughs> where I want to go back to. So <laughs> I, I think of the Times as and all a, that stuff. Yeah, I think of the Times as someone who hired – they generally in the past have hired – Ivy League people and people like that. And when they didn't, it sure. was sort of exceptional. And that's how you got a David Carr or something like that. Yep. But you came out of Texas. You moved around a lot because your parents did what? Uh, my father was in sales and we just moved. We just moved every time he got a new position in the company or whatever, one company for 30 years. And then I uh, had a wayward youth in high school and college and kind of flunked out and had to figure out what I was doing. And The flunking out was because of the waywardness and the uh, drugs and the alcohol? Correct. Yeah. Yes. I did not I did, I did not have a straight – So you don't have a college degree? I did. So I ended up doing some repair work. Um, I moved to California. My brother was in San Francisco and uh, went to a community college, College of Marin, which, where Robin Williams went. And so, I mean, basically just got my shit together and, and put credits together, transferred to UC Berkeley, um, did a bunch of random internships and just sort of, it was one of those things where it was, I needed my butt kicked by the world hard enough to, to realize what I wanted to do. And when did, when did that, when did you realize what you wanted to do? I mean, I've always been a reader and the one, th my parents, you know, were wonderful in the sense that, you know, they didn't buy us every toy, but they would always buy us books. And um, so it was just from a young age, it was always just reading something. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be an English lit major. And I guess maybe I can write for magazines or newspapers. Maybe I'll get a job teaching or whatever. And totally fell into tech in 2010 uh, doing, I was at Pete's four days a week as a barista. And then three days a week, I was at Forbes.com, your former alma mater at some point. Um, you're almost, I think I can't remember how long ago that was. I, I spent a lot of time there. Spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Um, Stone Cold Steve Austin feature story was one of your proudest yeah. moments. Is right? my still is it's still <laughs> so sadly I I, <laughs> I wandered in there as an intern uh, in 2010 as Facebook and Twitter were sort of coming up pre IPO. They didn't have anyone writing about those companies, and I was like, I would love to write about those companies, which. Uh, again, no tech reporting, no business reporting experience, but I felt like I totally lucked out because they became transformative companies and opened up like all sorts of possibilities in this industry. And um, so I was like tech blogger guy, you know, like 
your and my style was very voicey, and Mm -hmm. we didn't have to. um, We sort of relied on what we knew as what people wanted to hear. And I think getting hired by the Times in 2014 as like a dude who worked at a Silicon Valley blog was a new thing, right? And to the Times' credit, they took a chance on me, but then a bunch of other folks since, and we've really, I think a lot has changed in the past five years in in how they approach hiring. Yeah, so so besides the fact that they're casting a much wider net and and really aggressively uh, trying to really cover tech in a bunch of ways, what has changed about the Times since you've been there? I think just the the way we think about, I mean, (laughs) it was so brutal to go there and... I mean, you would have died. Like, I would get a scoop or something, and I want to get it up, right? And I, God knows if anyone would be around to, like, edit it or publish it or whatever, or then it would sit in, like, some folder for— Because at all things D slash Recode, <laughs> a bunch of us would just hit Press publish the button, and right? it went on the internet. <laughs> and it was, it was very— And it was a, a lot of times no one had looked at it. Right, right. That's, that's very true. And, I mean, there are— trade-offs in both scenarios, right? Like, I think there's, like, God love, like, the editors that have saved me for myself at the New York Times many a time, right? But um, it was hard for a guy who was born of the internet reporting age to slow down all of a sudden. And I think really from 2014 to 2019, we've that has, like, drastically changed. And I always tell people... What, the you, you slowed down or the Times has sped up? <laughs> that the Times has actually sped up quite yeah. a bit. Like it, I, um, I mean, maybe we've met each other in the middle, I would say, because I've taken a breath. But I do think they have gotten the... I mean, I sound like a total shill, but they really have gotten the urgency of where we are now. And it was not the case when I got there that, that they, the mentality of the news can wait for the times might have still been more prevalent. Classic <laughs> thing as a beat reporter is the New York Times would write the story you wrote a day later, a week right. later. Sure. You'd get all mad because they wouldn't credit you. Yep. And, but also just like, what the fuck? Right. The story's been out there forever. Now now Why you're covering you it as if it's news. Like you, the entire premise here is that no one is using the internet and your readers you know, have no idea that another news source exists. Exactly. To be fair is half true, right? Yeah, People was, don't know sure. it's news until they read the Times. sure. sure. But That's that was the thing is. that irked us always. I don't feel that way really at all anymore. Do you not? That's really good. That's yeah. nice to hear. I think that was – I mean even going in, I had that chip on my shoulder and I never wanted to – even like linking to people, right? Yep. Like I, I'm huge on crediting folks and, and if you got this scoop or whatever, like it matters especially when you're in the trades, you know, and like this is like stuff you kill yourself for, you know. So I think that we're – taking a much better approach to that now and and looking at the internet in ways I mean it seems basic or whatever but it's it's a big company and it's we've moved very quickly in a very short amount of time I think what about the voice of the times versus your voice that's a <laughs> that's still a it's hard it's hard because um I think as a paper you know, there's an institutional voice, right? And like they want to be able to inform a large amount of folks, but at the same time, they want to infuse it with some voiciness or or bring the voices of the people that they've poached to to work there, like into that, like maybe play to their strengths. And it's really hard to, I don't know what the people up top think, but I think just it's hard to deal with essentially two different reader bases, right? Like the readers of that are used to a certain, you know, Stentorian sure. New York yeah, yeah. Times, the voice, Mr. the omniscient, Isaac. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of voice. And then a voice uh, uh, that caters to the internet or to people who can get the Times alongside of Vox, alongside of, you know, whatever, Vice, any number of media companies. And, and being distinctive is an asset rather than, you know, a, a liability. And it's really hard to 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 hold both of those at the same time, you know? So I think we're ultimately probably going to have to, you know, we're, we're, we're shifting in the direction of, of being more comfortable with that level of voiciness. And maybe if you want to call it, maybe, maybe you have to label it something different first, like analysis or columnist or whatever, but like it's, it's coming through more than, than before. Someone near the top of the masthead, uh, (laughs) pointed me once to the daily and said, this is a huge win for us in many ways. And a huge way is that it is it is prompting our writers to be more voicey. The fact that that, mm. that Michael Barbaro has a voice that's distinct, um, literally his voice is distinct, but also <laughs> right. talking to the writers who made the story um, allows you to sort of the personality to come through and, and, and 
was trying to make the argument that this is showing up on the page or the mm. screen. That, 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 Interesting. But you seem like it's not it's no, not, we're think, not getting the full uncut Mike Isaac. On the, on the I don't think you want the full account. uncut Mike Isaac. Sometimes no, and that's the thing. That's the thing that I still believe in the form and full uncut Mike Isaac is not always digestible to everyone. And like you have to go for breadth um, more than depth at some points, you know, and we still at the end of the day have to turn out a product that, you know, millions of people want to read and can read. And so there's a medium there. Um, but Maybe that's the strength that we have going on right now is that there, there are at least other formats that we can try to play around in and we can mess with the weekly and what what the process is there. Or That's the, uh, the, the TV show. The, the TV, Hulu yeah, slash FX, FX TV show. deal we have right now. Yeah, or, or the many different podcasts that we have going on or whatever else. You know, there are other formats that I don't even know about that they're messing with. But. Speaking of voice, here is – I stopped asking people from the Times because I had a lot of them on this question. But you, I've been saying this question oh, God. for – Well, no, but that's the question, actually. How have you not gotten in trouble for your tweeting? (laughs) Because when you went there, I thought, well, that's not going to work. Mike's Mike's avatar is a a Charmin bear. That's that's a pretty good sense of where Mike's head is at. A lot of poop stuff. You and I have a running thing about uh, dump soups. Yep. Um, Yep. And then periodically there is a story about someone screwed up at the Times. It's specifically on Twitter mm. and there's a whole convulsion and it's just happened again. Yeah. Um, and there's constantly a new edict. But still, if, if, I, can, if I can figure it out, it's still don't screw up. Yeah. Um, so you, you are, you are a uh, prolific tweeter. <laughs> That's right. How, how do you work that into being a New York Times oh, reporter? Man. I, I, I think it's hard and it's, it's – it's, it's not just that you're – to be clear, like yeah. you do off-color tweets. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely curse a lot. That was actually – that was one of the things that I think I was told they were nervous about hiring me because of my Twitter account uh-huh. in the beginning. I think it's still a line that I have to feel out every day and it's really hard to sort of codify how you be on Twitter, right? It's just sort of don't screw up is a good maxim, not even just at the New York Times but anywhere, you know? And and it's hard to really – to to set that line in in stone because – that looks different every day. And and the other thing too, I think, is that the nature of the medium can really make that look different over time. Like you you look at tweets from 10 years ago that might be completely divorced from all context or or whatever, you know, or even just things that are just genuinely awful, but you're a different person or time has elapsed or you you just you realize that what I said was wrong and I regret it immensely. And by the way, there is – I mean I don't know how formally it's being organized because the people who are putting it together aren't, aren't rocket scientists. But right. there's there's a concerted effort. I just read today in Axia, so it must be true, of, of Trump allies trying to look through everyone's old tweets. Oh, yeah. they, you guys wrote a story about it, but now they're saying, actually, we really are going to do this for real. We're going to scoop up everyone's old tweets and strip them the context and embarrass them. Yeah, and it's a weapon, and and I think that that now we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. And I've thought about that too. Like I'm, I've thought about – I'd say a lot of dumb sort of things, but not nothing that I'm like ashamed of, but at the same time, like – Ten years from now, stripped of all context, how is that weaponized against you? That's why I think it's starting to – the tail is starting to wag the dog and how products are developed in the future. And maybe like as Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat sort of like continue, these are – this is like – this ephemerality is like going to be the way that we go in. How, how often does someone you cover, a company you cover, someone you've written about come to you and complain about your tweet and not your story? That's happened to me more frequently over the past few years. Actually, it's weird. One person told me we basically tweet, treat your Twitter account as another outlet because it's just – I mean it, that's what it is. It's just information conduit, right? And if I – like Kara and I would go up against each other on getting Kara scoops. Swisher. Kara, yeah, sorry, my old boss, Kara Swisher, would go up against each other on scoops or whatever, and I would be like, "Oh God, oh God, I got to get this out. Oh, it's not going to go online. Oh, I'll just tweet it, right?" And like, tweeting is, you know, it's just another form of consuming media, and that trickles down. I mean, the president of the United States tweets, and things happen because of it, right? So, I think the way the point I'm making is like, you have to sort of use your best. Judgment at the end of the day, and and that line is constantly shifting, and maybe what's okay today is not going to be okay five years from now. But we'll have to, I'll have to get canceled when I get there. I guess. Did you think we were going to end this interview by you saying you were going to get canceled because of your tweets? Because <laughs> that's where we're at. <laughs> no, but I like it. I let's like it. let's finish it up formally. Go buy Super Pumped. Yes, please.
You'll be hearing this late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, one more bit of sausage making. What's the best way for someone to purchase this in a way that helps you move up whatever ranking is relevant? Do they need to buy it on Amazon? Should they go to an actual bookstore? I think all of it really counts. If you want to do Amazon, whatever works best for you. I do like um, supporting indie bookstores and going in and, and showing support for physical brick-and-mortar places that actually exist. So I'm always a shout-out for that. But whatever is easiest for you to read, this would be great. Physical books are – I still uh, find them near and dear to my heart. So maybe go buy a physical book. Look at you, that big smile on your face. Oh, I write for a newspaper. <laughs> I like that you ignored my advice, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being my – Opposite day mentor. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again to Mike for coming on. Was looking forward to that. I literally cut my vacation short to do it. I think it was worth it. Since you're still listening, we have a bonus for you. I've got some market research here from two very particular guests. We're going to introduce them right now. Special treat, I think hopefully for you guys. As you know, as I say on this podcast very often, I'm old. It's hard for me to figure out what the young people are doing. So the way I do my market research is I bring in a couple guys I know pretty well. I'm going to introduce them to you right now. Hi, I'm Jonah. Jonah, how old are you? I'm nine. You're nine. What grade are you going into, Jonah? Fourth. Fourth. And then this guy over here? I'm Ben, newly 11, going into sixth grade. You are 11. You just had your birthday. Yeah, I okay. said newly 11. Newly 11. Thank you for correcting me. Both of you guys You're wearing headphones, closer. Dad, We're and all... I'm talking into a microphone. Okay. You're going to need hearing aids like Grandma. All right. I'm glad you guys are opening up. Um, so we now reveal the trick. These are my kids. Welcome, guys. We're going to do a quick survey about what you guys are doing with technology. Sound good? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. First, we'll just do a quick first thought, best thought, which means you just tell me what you're thinking, right, when I ask you this question. What are you spending most of your time on when you're using electronics? Uh, now I gotta say it's mostly looking stuff up, actually. Actually, either that or playing on my Nintendo. Nintendo, it's a, what kind of Nintendo is? Nintendo DS. That's old school. Old, well, old school. No, just playing video games in general, but um, also a lot of time looking stuff up. What kind of stuff do you look up? I honestly just look up um, like stuff on Amazon. It's things you want to buy. Yes. Okay, so Amazon and Nintendo DS. And for you, Jonah? And other gaming um, platforms. Video games? Which video game is your current favorite? Well, I'm sure none of, I'm sure nobody has ever heard of this game, but it's called Fortnite. And it's the least popular game in the world right now. I'm sure nobody's heard about it. Wait, I, wait what was where, that? Where did you called? learn to be sarcastic, Jonah? By you. Okay, good. I actually think of my bit mom. Yeah, both, no, well, both yeah. of us were pretty sarcastic. Um, so you guys, I, I didn't let you play Fortnite until December of mm-hmm. last year. Right. You're still playing it a lot. Yeah. Are, are the other kids your age playing Fortnite still? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you have you heard that maybe it's less popular than it used to be? Yeah. Yes. Doesn't bother you? No. Nope. Okay. Still huge Fortnite fans. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you frequently come to me and say, Dad, Dad, I need money for Fortnite. Fortnite's a free game. What are you spending your money on? Um, or my money on? They, uh, currency. Digital currency. Digital currency that allows you to buy what? Buy items that legitimately don't do anything. So just explain it in case anyone's still keeping track of this. You spend my money, turn it into virtual coins, yes. and you buy what? And I buy outfits for my avatar and other stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what's the point of buying different outfits for your characters? Well, I just they want to say fun. that you do it much more than us. Uh, you spend good. more money on Fortnite than us. No, that's uh, not true anymore. Yes, spend it ten is. bucks on Fortnite. No, you guys have spent more than I have. How do you know? I actually know how much money I spent. <laughs> but the point is, is that you guys are re- will come to me and say, "I really want to buy this." You call it a skin, right? It's an outfit. Yeah. And why? Why do you get excited about that? Uh, it looks cool. It looks cool. Just like okay. So it's like when you get excited about buying clothes. Right, but I wear the clothes in real life. Yes, you do. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of idea. Okay, so it's just as important to you the way you look on the game as the way that you look in real life. Maybe but more also, so. Also, there no. are actually skins that blend in with your surroundings. So you could, like, yeah, hide not really. There are, like, some skins that, that yeah, are not really. so green yeah, that not you can really. hide. Yeah, not really. They can't even see you. All right, we have a dispute here about whether they actually help you in your gameplay, too. All right, let's, let's talk about TV. What's your favorite TV network? Probably Hulu right I'll let now. Ben say it. Hulu. You agree, Jonah? 
Okay, do you know what TV network is? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, like Netflix, Hulu, Hulu. Netflix, Fox, um, CBS, all that. Stuff. Oh, you, okay. Some old-timey networks. And do you guys ever watch TV the way I used to watch TV on an actual TV set with a with a remote control? No. No. So how do you consume the TV? How are you watching it? Um. Well, we have we two have iPads. Sm- we, we have Apple have. TV. We have, app- we have iPads, we have an Apple TV, and we, we have use, like, like, HBO to, or Hulu or something to get what we want to watch. How often do you see a commercial when you're watching TV? Um, well, we used Only to when not, we're we watching Hulu. Wait, one, one at a time. We used to not see it. Because? Because it was hooked up to mom's account, and she didn't have the, um, she didn't, she had the, um, she didn't have live, live TV, so it was in ads, but then, um... Now it's your account, so we so it's live TV, so we do have ads. Yeah. And net, does Netflix have ads? No, it no. doesn't. Do you care when there's an ad on? Not really. Um, sometimes because like in shows like Top Chef, the ads are like every five minutes, and it's kind of annoying. Got it. And then what about YouTube? You guys are spending a lot of YouTube time. I've noticed in the last year. Oh no, that's just uh, since you took me since no. um you set, started restricting our access, I stopped watching YouTube. No, I still watch YouTube, yeah. I restricted your access? Yeah. How did I do that? No, we're still taking away that iPad, taking away the iPad when I binge watch during the night. Yeah, yeah, I have done that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And and when you're looking on YouTube, what are you consuming? What are you watching? What's a meme? A meme is an internet joke. An internet, a meme is an internet joke? Actually, actually, no, 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 never mind. This is a meme. Yoink! Okay, that's not going to make any sense. To okay, someone. um, ben, I'm you, you I'm, I'm going to use Alexa's definition for it. A meme is an internet joke that has achieved a certain level of popularity. And what do you learn about memes? YouTube, Fortnite. Typically, I just type in memes and boom. So you, you were just saying I want to see a meme, and to do you a meme yeah. is it just a joke on the internet? Yes. Yes. But um, but if they get high enough in popularity, they start showing up everywhere, and that's when. You, you see them. For instance, Old Town Road is a meme. Technically. Old Town Road is a song. No, but it's actually a meme. It's What's the difference song. between a song and a meme? So- it's a meme song. Yeah, it's a meme song. What, what does that mean? It's a meme song. Well, it's just because it's, um, the, if you listen it's actually to not the really lyrics, a meme. they're funny a little bit. It's actually just a song that got stuck in people's heads and people started liking it. So It's an earworm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about music briefly. So where do you guys discuss, Jonah, sit still for a second. That'll work better. Uh, where do you guys listen to music? Where do you learn about music? Actually? Spotify. You, so you listen to music from Spotify? Yes. And how do you figure out what you want to listen to? Okay, first off, you play a ton of songs we don't know in the car. And also when we go to Ubers, they usually play stuff. Also, also Ubers. like... So you learn about a lot of stuff in a car. Yeah. So usually we are the last people to figure out about trending stuff because no, no, yes because like lies. we find it out at school and people and people know it before us and it's like old town road we didn't figure out until it was like popular for a week lies I, and rubbish i kind of think that's comforting that i'm the one telling about music but that's going to change like any minute right no now what do your friends learn about music are their parents playing music for them? I don't know that. I have n- we have no idea. We don't right. ask them that. We'll bring your friends on the next podcast. Anything else you want to tell Recode Media listeners? Uh, remember, they're, they're going to report what, they, what you say. Amazon is a cult. Illuminati exposed. Also, um, never say Amazon in a bookstore. Because? Because. Amazon is a cult. Or any store, because then obviously they're just going to order on Amazon. Gentlemen, thank Amazon you for coming on. Amazon is a cult. On. Ben, I appreciate your inside joke that only exists in your head. Um, the inside joke cult. Thanks, everyone. See you in a year. Bye-bye. Thanks again, dudes. Now we're going to go get some dinner. One more thing. want to thank everyone who listens to the show, everyone who makes this show. That's Zach and Jelani and Mike France who edits this. So it sounds even better than it normally would. Thanks to our advertisers who bring this show to you for free. Thanks to you guys who like this show. You're still listening. Please tell someone else to listen. We appreciate it. Thanks in advance. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.